Hi everyone, just a quick aside before we get to the podcast. I often get contacted by listeners asking how they can help address the issues that we cover in this podcast. How can you help? How do you help people in abusive polygamous relationships? How do you support women in these groups? How do you help people that have been affected by these issues? Or some of you reach out for resources and ask, where can I get some help from? I want you to be aware of a resource that I like to direct people toward, Cherished Families. I'm going to let my friend Tyner tell you more about them. Hey everybody, I'm actor Tyner Rushing. I came into contact with Mormon issues affecting fundamentalist communities from my work on a TV show, and I wanted to know how to help. And I found out about Cherished Families. I went to Southern Utah. I toured their facilities and was uh, really, truly impressed. It's an organization founded by women with polygamous backgrounds. Shirley Draper, who co-founded it, left the FLDS group several years ago, and the experience was so difficult. She realized how many support gaps there were and ran into a lot of barriers to accessing resources, so she started Cherish Families as a way to help people like her. I was really, really impressed with the organization, which is why I've decided to lend my voice to support the work that they do. That's right. If you're looking for the best way to help people involved with issues on this podcast, lend your support to Cherish Families. Go to cherishfamilies.org to find out more. Or if you're in need of assistance, if you're one of those folks in a plural community that needs a little extra help or leaving a plural community, contact Cherish Families at cherishfamilies.org. Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're going to be talking about some very difficult things. So I'm going to give this episode a lot of trigger warnings. We will be discussing abuse, sexual abuse, and violence. So if those topics are too hard to handle, I would recommend sitting this one out. As many of you know by now, I am one of the consultants for Under the Banner of Heaven, the limited series on Hulu through FX that discusses a fictionalized version of a real story of how Brenda Wright Lafferty and her baby Erica Lafferty were murdered at the hands of radicalized Mormon fundamentalists Dan and Ron Lafferty, who were her brother-in-law's. You can check that out on Hulu. It's running right now. Of course, it's got the whole Mormon world abuzz. And the critiques have been interesting to watch. I'm sitting back and letting people enjoy it because, of course, it's a television show at the end of the day. It's not a documentary history. And because of that, people get to experience media however they experience it. That's kind of the fun. Um, Not that this show is fun, not that there's anything fun about this show, but it's kind of like a fandom. You know, Mormonism is our fandom. It's the things that we are obsessed about and that matter to us. If this was Star Trek or something else, there would be similar reactions. People are discussing vigorously, quite passionately, what they think about the show. If they're related to the Mormon community at all, they're talking about what it got wrong, what it got right, what they like about it, what they didn't like about it. And that's part of the viewership experience. So I'm glad that people are are having 
those kind of conversations. I'm also really glad that the show is opening up conversations that have been needed to have publicly in this community for a long time. It is a little bit startling and embarrassing for a community as large as Mormonism who has such a fraught history and past with how we're represented to see ourselves depicted in a true crime genre. It's dark, it's eerie, it's creepy. There are things that we don't like about it. And then of course it shows some of our darkest, deepest corners of of our faith. Now, you don't have to identify with those corners, but they still do exist. And because of that, the show, like I said, is starting these conversations. And one of the conversations that I think is pretty brilliant is one that we recorded today. I am interviewing Ben Schaefer. He's a Mormon fundamentalist man. He's a man who holds beliefs like some of those that you'll see in the show that I would say uh, explore some of the lesser known frontier doctrines. And they are their views that I passionately disagree with. I think that Brigham Young, who instituted a lot of these violent things, as, long, as well as Joseph Smith and other prophets, were wrong. I think that they were misguided. I think that they took their own trauma and their own passions and their own heartaches and their own confusions about being a human on this earth, and they codified them into doctrine and theology. Mormonism is largely a traumatized people. We had a lot of persecution, yes, but also we carved out our faith and homes and a frontier by colonizing a land that was already inhabited by people. And that requires a certain amount of hardness to be able to do the things that it takes to colonize an area. There's violence involved in that. And so that violence, that foundational violence of our faith trickles down still into a lot of our beliefs and culture and myths and practices and how we engage with each other. The show puts forth a thesis, as does the book that it's written on, that there is a violent undercurrent in Mormonism. That topic has a lot of Mormon scholars debating if that is true. If you were to meet your average LDS chapel Mormon, they seem very peaceful and kind. They send their kids to BYU. They put high, blonde highlights in their hair and they have clean houses and put shiplap on their walls and they make really good brownies and they will rake your leaves off of your grass and mow your lawn and clear your snow. The majority of Latter-day Saints that I know are like that which you will see represented in Brenda's family, her LDS family in the show, and Jeb Pyrie's family as well. There's also another kind of Mormon, one that is a lot more common than I think people want to admit or to realize, and that is the Lafferty kind of Mormon. People don't realize, especially Mormons, when they try to distance themselves from fundamentalism, how it's the LDS church, the wards, the stakes, the seminary and institute classes that seeds fundamentalism. The majority, if not all, of fundamentalists started out in the mainstream church. And I believe because there have been no authoritative statements disavowing old doctrines and practices like those on race and gender and priesthood and blood atonement and vengeance and Adam God, that there's a lot of open interpretation. Still in Mormon canon today, there's a scripture about Nephi, the story of a, of a hero who we're supposed to look to, who we're taught since birth to emulate. Nephi has to behead a man to get an ancient record. And he doesn't want to do it, but he has to kill the man. An angel told him so. And the scriptures state very clearly that it is better that one man shall perish than a whole nation dwindle in unbelief. And that lesson was taught to me and to so many millions of Mormons over and over that sometimes great sacrifices need to be made in order for the greater good. 
of course, it was a violent metaphor and one that still exists within the scripture. And so if you are deeply traumatized, as a lot of our Mormon men are, from patriarchal priesthood, uh, masculinity narratives given to them from birth that boys are tough and boys are strong and boys have to sometimes be violent to protect their families, then that scripture can be a dangerous tool, a dangerous justification. So that's what this podcast is today. I understand the defensiveness in the LDS community, but for once, I think we can take the example of the fundamentalist community who are having hard conversations as you will see in this. I've interviewed Ben Schaefer. He's been on the podcast before, and he's sharing with us for the very first time something very deeply personal and painful. He came to me after this series was announced and said, I really don't want to have this conversation. I resent that we have to have this conversation about violent fundamentalists. It brings you know, persecution onto our families. It stigmatizes us. But this is the conversation we're having. This is the one that got brought to our door. So let's have this conversation. And he said, Lindsay, I want to tell the story of my own brother who radicalized and became dangerous and violent like the Lafferty's. And I knew this story because it's pretty recent. It's the story of it's the story of Samuel Schaefer and the Knights of the Crystal Blade. You can look that up. We'll link the articles in the show notes. It's a horrific story. And it was one that happened very recently, and it, it mirrors the Lafferty story in so many ways, in startling ways, as do lots of these stories. So we're going to let Ben share it today. He wanted to. He asked to do this. And like I said, although Ben holds to beliefs that I don't necessarily agree with, I think it's incredibly brave and strong. I think he's leading the way to be vulnerable. I think the anecdote to all of this generational trauma and violence that has become so casual and normalized in our community is truth and vulnerability. That might sound cliche, but we need more brave men in Mormonism. We need more vulnerable men in Mormonism. We need to constantly work on how to talk about our feelings and our frustrations and our disappointments and our failures. And the story of the Lafferty murders, as horrific as it is, is also a story about community failure, community enablement. And how this mask of shame that still exists, you can read it in the reviews, in everyone that wants to distance themselves from these acts, this shame is thick and palpable and it prevents us from doing the much needed work to look inside ourselves, inside our own congregations, inside our own communities and families and root out the violence and the dangerous practices. So with that, we're going to bring you Ben Schaefer. to bring back a recurring guest on this podcast, Benjamin Schaefer. Ben, can you say hello? Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on, Lindsay. So we've had you on before to talk about some historical stuff. And remind me the episodes because um, they all sort of blend Ooh, together to me now. So I did do an episode where I talked about um, my own story a little bit about converting from the mainstream LDS into a fundamentalist church, Christ church. Um, then I was also on an episode where we wanted to talk about the history of temples throughout the restoration. And I brought some historical perspective, but we also had on um, another guest, Anne Hatch, who is temple matron in Christchurch, to talk about uh, those temples and what, how those different uh, temple ceremonies have evolved over time. 
Yeah, that's right. I forgot about having Anne on too. Anne is such a great voice. So uh, if you want to hear more of Ben's interviews, they've, you know, he's been on the podcast before, but today is kind of a special day and one that is, I'm going to try not to get emotional about because it's, it's kind of a big deal. So if I'm not going to try, I'm going to get emotional, just deal with it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's fair. If, if you've been on the Mormon internet, you've been following the under the banner of heaven discussions, Hulu FX through Hulu has produced the show under the banner of heaven based on the book of the same name by John Krakauer, which follows the brutal revenge killings of Brenda Wright Lafferty and her daughter, Erica Lafferty. They were killed at the hands of her brother-in-laws um, under the guise, under sort of the banner, if you will, of some Mormon fundamentalist beliefs. And so the, the series is exploring that. It's a fictionalized account, of course. It doesn't follow it completely religiously, but pretty close. And I would know that because I uh, was a paid advisor for the show. I got to work on the show. I got to be on set. I got to read the script a bunch of times, work with the actors. It was a pretty incredible experience. And I know that there are a lot of reactions to this. In fact, I think I saw it. <laughs> some of the mainstream folks in my own community are starting a change.org petition to shut the show down and to not have it um, shown in Utah. It's a bit too late for that. Well, and I just, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but it might factor into what we're talking about today. So the reason we, we are having Ben on is uh, something very sensitive and I think incredibly brave and I think kind of beautiful. So Ben was also an advisor to me on the show. He called and helped me out with a few fundamentalist um, fact-checking things and, and some representation questions. And when I called Ben, I knew I could call Ben and ask him these questions. And I knew that Ben you know, had strong opinions about the book. A lot of fundamentalists believe that John Krakauer's book has brought more uh, sti stigma to their communities and more discrimination than it, than it did sunlight. And so when I approached Ben, I was, I was you know, very sensitive about asking for his help. But Ben, like myself, believes that better accurate representation is just better. And even if the show showed painted Mormon fundamentalists in a bad light, that at least showing it to be accurate would be safer and less dangerous. Is that a fair characterization, Ben? Yeah, sunlight's the best disinfectant. And there are problems. There are problems in all of our Mormon communities of various kinds. And if we're going to address that, sometimes you've got to get into the the dirt. you got to get into the crap of it and you've got to address it. So much better to have it out there and discuss than to leave it to, to ignorance. Uh, you know, I just read a review of Under the Banner of Heaven from the LA Times and they generalized in very dangerous ways. They said, oh, well, the biggest problem with uh, what happened uh, was that there were Mormon fundamentalists and Mormon fundamentalists are violent child molesters. Just flat out. They just said that they're all essentially generalized in that way in their review. And I was, you know, they might have neighbors that are Mormon fundamentalists, but because our community is always afraid to express things because we're, I mean, historically it's a rational fear, afraid of persecution, afraid of prosecution. Uh, people are so shy to say anything or speak out in any way. And then what's the result of that? People who are 
unfriendly or even violent against us become the only experts sometimes. And then their voices are the only ones heard. And people begin to think that all fundamentalists are, are probably murderers and child molesters. It's very difficult uh, for people, especially if they're transitioning away from one of the more extremist or dangerous sects like under Warren Jeffs with the FLDS, that stigma follows them. And it makes it very difficult for them to integrate into any kind of society. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I've been saying over and over is, listen, LDS people who are the most upset, Mormon fundamentalists, anyone in the Mormon diaspora who is upset, this is the time the world is looking at us. This is the time to use your voice. And and Ben, you know, kind of said something that really cut to the core of this a few weeks ago. So the the trailer to the show came out. It was cut very provocatively. Of course, the aim of the show is not a documentary. It's not telling history. It's to tell a compelling story. It's a true crime story. It's a little shocking for all Mormons to see themselves in this like true detective noir palette. And I think the initial shock is what most people react to at first. And once they sort of settle in with that you know, landscape and color scheme, they settled down, but the, the trailer came out and it evoked it. I think it triggered everyone. And Ben came to me and said something, and I'm going to sort of paraphrase. He said, listen, this is a hard conversation. It makes it harder on our community. I wish that it wasn't this conversation, but this is the conversation that has been brought to our door. This is the conversation we're having. So it's time to have the conversation. And I want to be at the table having that discussion. Is that also a fair characterization? Very. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's how I feel so, about it. So I'm going to talk about something sensitive. And even though Ben is, you know, a Mormon fundamentalist man, he believes ideas that I might disagree with or you might disagree with. One of the things I admire about Ben is he is what we would call in the Mormon community. He has a softened heart. He's open to learning. I've been very impressed uh, how open-minded he is. He interacts daily with people who disagree with him. He's well-read. He reads opposing opinions. He dialogues with people with a lot of patience. And to me, that's the key. Uh, he's been able to bring back some of these ideas to his own community and to different Mormon fundamentalist communities and be an advocate for, you know, more kindness towards LG LGBTQ people, more kindness to uh, issues of race and, and fighting racism and discrimination within his own community. And that is not easy to do. Some of these ideas are deeply entrenched in all of Mormonism. And I think you take a lot of flack on your own side for that. Is that fair? Uh, that's definitely fair. If you look at uh, my interactions with Mormon fundamentalists in general, uh, fortunately in Christchurch, we have a very open dialogue type of culture. Um, but yes, it is true that when I call somebody out for being racist, they'll often be like, wait, aren't you on my side? You know, and it's like, no, no, actually I'm not. I don't think that's the interpretation we have to take from this, you know, and that can be, um, so yeah. But you know what, those are the types of hard conversations that is the whole point of this, of this episode, I think, is that we need to be talking about how do we have these hard conversations and why it's a matter of life and death sometimes that we we have to hold people to account. And, and, and Ben would yeah, know about that. That can be difficult, but you got to do it. Sorry. And Ben Ben would know about this on a very personal level. So something that he has 
been sort of waiting to share and talk about until the time was right, until he was at a place where he could handle this, is the story of sort of this mainstream sect of folks depicted in the show Under the Banner of Heaven with the Lafferty family, Heather Mainstream, and they sort of radicalize and I would say go off the deep end and get into what Dustin Lance Black calls the darker corners of Mormon fundamentalism, blood atonement. Mm-hmm use those kind of things. Ben knows in a real personal way, not just with his experiences with interacting with, you know, various Mormon fundamentalists, which we'll talk about, but Ben experienced this on a personal level. He has family members who went through this very similar trajectory of the Lafferty's. It was not in the eighties. It was pretty recently. And it's been a deeply painful thing for Ben Schaefer, his brother, Samuel Schaefer, radicalized and started his own sect, uh, the, the Knights of the Crystal Blade. And so Ben is finally ready to talk to us about it. He's come to me and said he he wants to do this. And so I would ask that everyone hold some space for how brave that is, how difficult that has been for him. And uh, that he, you know, regardless of, of who you've been or grown in the past like this is i think this is such a brave step forward no matter what so i really admire that and i think it's brave thank you i appreciate that um so i guess we should get into that um if you've seen uh, the first two episodes of under the banner of heaven of course you everyone should know it's about the murder of brenda and erica and it was very affecting to me um tastefully done by the way though tastefully done they didn't uh, glorify the gore or the violence of it they showed the horror of it and all i could see was that that could have been me that could have been my daughters not erica but my daughters elnora cordelia adelaide gwendolyn could have been them um so it's been a few years um but and it was really too hard for me to talk about it first uh, my brother samuel uh at, fell in with a man named john coltharp and john coltharp uh, much like uh much like those lafferty uh boys and much like uh, some of the other radical and destructive cult leader type leaders has decided that you know he was the one mighty and strong that's a whole that's, there's a whole Mormon topic. How many people claim to be the one mighty and strong, you know? Uh, and I think we covered that on here because I, I always just say like a new day, a new one mighty and strong arises. Everyone, right. is, Lord, is it I? I think it is. It is me. Oh, it must be me. There's there's the arrogance, the hubris of it. Speaking, yes. Right. Um, and. And so John Coltharp was going around saying that he was the one mighty and strong, that he was the Davidic servant. I think there's another title for you uh, claimed by others, including like Denver Snuffer and other people who are hopefully considerably less violent, but claimed to be all that, you know what I mean? All that and and cherry on top, you know, kind of thing. And uh, my brother Sam fell in with him and decided that he was the real deal, believed it and um, was ready to fall back into it. Honestly, it was kind of an odd thing for me because that was kind of what was bringing the Sam, my brother Samuel was actually moving more toward Mormonism, more toward the mainstream by joining this, this guy, by the way, he was way out there on the fringes. Um, we're talking more or less a neo-pagan slash 
visionary type person. And he was kind of finding his way back to Mormonism through this. But John Clotharp was trouble. Um, and that's not to say that my brother didn't become trouble, but, uh, you know, he was my brother. I'd known him since his birth, right? I mean, I was there at his birth. He's my little brother. I, um, I've known him my whole life. He always seemed harmless. Um, he seemed harmless not only because of the fact that he'd never done anything violent or threatened anyone or had any violent tendencies that we were aware of in the past. He was also non-threatening because he was handicapped. Pretty severely handicapped, actually. Um, he has a muscle disease. He has only about a tenth of the muscle that most people have in their body. He, you know, so he has difficulty getting up or down. He cannot run, for example. He can only walk, and his strength is very small. It's fairly, it's fairly weak. Um, and so, not not an intimidating character. At least it didn't seem so. And as he went through all of these other experimentation with religion, he was even more or less, he, he, he viewed himself as an atheist ex-Mormon too, for a couple of years. Um, just, he was done with religion. He could, he thought that uh, Mormonism was bunk, uh, much like some of the other characters that come out in, especially in works like Under the Manor of Heaven, where people look at that and say, well, look at this. Mormonism is filled with all of this bunk. Uh, maybe Joseph Smith was a con man. Maybe the Bible is just a bunch of crazy old violent trash from ancient civilizations that has no relevancy, you know, things like that. And that's basically where he arrived at for a while. But I kind of say that um, in the mainstream discussion, and this is something that when, when I see these defensive, like these ardent defenses from mainstream Latter-day Saints being like, this doesn't happen in our church. This isn't us. Mormon fundamentalists. The mainstream church is its own branch of Mormonism. We don't like to think of it yep. that way, but we are. There are, I keep saying this number over and over, and it's probably grown way more since I've been quoting this. But historian Steve Shields says there are over 480, you know, extant expressions of Mormonism's breakoff groups, sects, churches, including the mainstream church. And this is one of them. And the mainstream church probably seeds more fundamentalist breakoff sects than anything. Whether and, and it, even in the ex-Mormon community, you know, I I have I think that a lot of people that become disenfranchised with the institution in the mainstream church that leave the church have some fundamentalist thinking when they leave. I know I did. Everything was still very binary. It came out in sort of my social justice, my feminism, right? It was very black and white. And I think ex-Mormons work through that, but fundamentalists also lose their faith in the mainstream institution. And that's kind of a, a common theme, I think. And it sounds like that happened to your brother. Yeah. So he, he was finding a newfound faith in Mormonism, but this expression of Mormonism was, was dangerous. John Coltharp started out by making arguments like, well, you know, legal adulthood is a legal concept, and therefore, you know, um, there's nothing inherently wrong with underage marriage because, I mean, what's the difference between 17 and a half and 18? It's, it's a few months. It doesn't really make any difference. And arguments like that. And he was doing that online on Facebook and a couple of places, and um, several people, including me, uh, were telling him, no, you're wrong. But, you know, this is online argument. This is this doesn't necessarily feel like it's rising to the level of of concern, right? Most of us at least didn't think so. 
So, so I want to bring up this point too, because this is, this is kind of how it happens. Not that anyone is responsible for what perpetrators do, but you and I, we were talking about this before we all do this when we see harmful stuff, hard, especially with people we know and love, we're like, they would never, they're just, it's just talk or it's just an intellectual discussion. You know, Mm -hmm. it, this is part of how we enable it because it's happening and we're trying to be open-minded. You and I are both trying to be open-minded to mm-hmm. different viewpoints, but you hear something that's qu- kind of horrifying and you're like, what do I do with this? Right. And then, uh, right, exactly. And, and this is part of the problem is that you see red flags, but most people are polite about those red flags. And that's just kind of how we go along to get along at the same time. Especially uh, in our culture, right? We're, we're, yeah. we don't want conflict. Conflict is of the devil. Contention is of the devil. And so, we, we often see it and we know it's wrong, but we're just like, I don't want to, I don't want to shake things up. Right. And I've gotten to the point where I've changed my mind about that. I think that it's actually our obligation when we see something that crosses a certain kind of line, when it crosses that line, it needs to be called out directly and they need to suffer some kind of consequences. You know, this, this can be minor. It could be some kind of a Facebook group. Somebody starts advocating for underage marriage you just tell them that is not correct. It is not permissible. It is dangerous. This has led to violence and molestation and other problems in the past. I'm not saying that you are there, but I am saying that that comment was beyond the pale and it will not be tolerated. And if, if necessary, you know, you kick them out of some Facebook group or something like that. These aren't terrible consequences. These are just appropriate consequences. And so at that point, that should have been, it should have been clear to everyone at that point, this person is not to be trusted with, you know, because he's crossed that line. Now, of course, that was just one little red flag. And when it's religion, we have the tendency to say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. Um, Religious beliefs are protected and should be protected um, by law. We should all have respect for each other's religious beliefs. But there's a certain line And we need to draw that line far more clearly in our communities and say, but if it's over that line, it is not entitled to the respect that we give to religious belief. Well, let's talk about that. Because that is dangerous. Can we talk about that line? Because I think that line is is the murky part of of this problem. It is so murky. Yeah. And it's the thing that we deal with in in our community, in the mainstream church as well. Um, So our, our mainstream church would draw the line at polygamy, right? Fundamentalists would say, most fundamentalists would say we don't uh, draw that line, but you know, a lot of, well, right. of course, work- personally believing in polygamy. I just think that like, look in society, we've already decided that consenting adults are allowed to decide their own relationships. So yeah, I don't think polygamy is that line at all. Uh, but then again, I'm a polygamist, right? So, well, and so your group, you don't allow underage marriages, but Correct. other groups do. And those lines increasingly get blurred. And so that's, that's also a hard one to talk about because where, where's the standard, where's the line, you know, where I advocate for fundamentalists are, uh-huh. if, if it's above the law, you're not breaking the law. We've decriminalized polygamy to help you, you know, live consenting adults to do what they want to do. As long as it's consenting adults, I don't believe in coercion. I don't believe in incest, Absolutely. you know, so an abuse of so, situations, but where's the line? Where's the line? I mean, I think underage marriages or talk about them or encouragement of them, that's over the line. Um, 
incest over the line. Uh, we do not talk about these things as we don't make excuses for them, I guess is what I should say. Of course, we can talk about them. We have to address them. Um, we don't make excuses for them. Otherwise, it's like, no, you're obviously over the line. Uh, violence. Honestly, I think justifications of violence of any kind is over the line. This actually leads me to one of the things I'd love to talk about, which is like proper interpretation of scripture. People can look at scripture, which deals with very difficult issues. You know, the Bible is filled with genocides and wars and, and rapes and horrific, horrific things, you know. And when you look at the Bible, I'm not saying that I reject the Bible. I'm a Bible believer. But I am saying that if you're interpreting that violence from the Bible as a justification for future violence, then I would say, no, you're interpreting that wrong. And that kind of interpretation cannot be tolerated. It leads to dangerous outcomes. Now, th here's the thing. You can, two different people can read the same exact scripture and I could take it as a justification for my beliefs about pacifism, about how important it is to oppose violence. And other people might use that same uh, scripture used to justify violence. Um, a great example might be Abraham and Isaac. Okay. Some people will um, stand up and they'll give an interpretation of that. They'll say, Abraham was told to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, okay, okay, so we've got blood atonement going on. Possibly we've got um, human sacrifice, murder. You know, this is scary stuff. And people will sometimes tell that story and they'll use it to say, would you be as faithful as Abraham? Would you sacrifice your own child? The I mean, we even have we have stories of Joseph Smith doing that. But here's the thing: the the mm -hmm. the the scripture that I think does the the most harm in Mormonism is the story of Nephi cutting off Laban's head and the justification used for that. Now, I appreciate right. the interpretations that are that argue that as a metaphor, but I do think that that scripture opens the door. And I'm really it does the community of Christ, for example, they have a sort of eradicated some of the harmful scriptures in their canon, which I think is fantastic. I, I'm one of those people that I don't think that we look to the past always for the truth. Uh, one of the beautiful things about Mormonism in general is this idea of continuing revelation. And I definitely think that all Mormon sects don't rely on that enough. And we should be uh, transforming more modern churches for the modern age. But uh, let's get into the let's finish your brother's story. And then we'll kind of talk about how that scripture has justified a lot of violence in our culture and community. Right. Um, so my brother's story back to that. Um, he, uh, fell in with this guy named John Coltharp and their interpretations were all frightening stuff uh, at first. So, for example, he talked about underage uh, marriages, and then he started to justify, based on the ancient patriarchs, again, he started to justify the idea that maybe a dowry should be paid, that women were the property of their fathers, property of their husbands. Um, and... Or a debt had to be paid for a husband to take a wife. Um, and of course, I was pushing back on this. I was like, look, women aren't your property. And he was like, no, but according to the Bible, they are. And I'm like, no, they're not. And so there was another red flag. Well, and this is the problem we were I was just addressing. Like going back to the past to look for a blueprint for the future is not... That's a dangerous model. Right? Yeah, it's a dangerous model. Exactly. Okay, continue. Uh, I also want to point out one of the reasons it's a dangerous model is because don't we want to do better? Isn't the Mormon 
ethos, the Mormon goal to build the millennial world, to build Zion, to have this whole new world where we put an end to all suffering, an end to all pain. This is like the hope of the gospel is, is a forward looking thing. Well, and we're it's looking like, backward and we're saying, well, if it was good enough for Brigham, it's good enough for me. Then we're never going to do better than Brigham. Or Brigham's world is the one that we want to recreate. And we've seen that, you know, in someone like Warren Jeffs, who is obsessed with restoring the restoration in his mind of what Joseph Smith was doing, what Brigham Young was doing. And then you've got his sort of warped interpretation of history applied to that. Right. It, so that's where they invented the prairie dresses and all the different stylistic differences. You know, that wasn't just organic. That was, that was imposed a lot of it. Yeah. If we're going to go back to the past, can we get rid of penicillin? Is like that how it happens? You know what I mean? I hope not. You know, it's saved so many well, people's lives. So, so your brother, so your brother starts getting into these dangerous doctrines. Right. Um, I tell him off a few times. I tell him off for some racism. Um, I tell him off for the underage stuff. I tell him off for his ideas about women being property. And basically he gets really mad at me and writes me off and says that he doesn't want to have anything to do with me and stops communicating with me. Um, John Coltharp came to want my house one time, just more or less to be a jerk and tell me off and tell me that I would be destroyed. There's another red flag for you. They're destroyed. You'll be destroyed um, if you don't obey uh, language. And um, his, he was giving me that kind of crap at my house, which also made me nervous because it means he knows where I live and tells me off. And I just tell him to leave, you know? And so then at that point, he basically ends up cutting off ties with the whole family. He says, he's not going to celebrate holidays with us. He's not going to communicate with us. He's going to be with his real family. His real family is John Coltharp because John Coltharp is God's prophet and he's sealed to him for eternity. And not, not, our family, you know, doesn't really count because we're not sealed by John Coltharp's authority. And so we're not really family anymore, not real family. So he's going to go be with his real family, he says, and they basically disappear. They were living in Spring City. They moved in together. Um, he was living in Spring City. Uh, both of them are divorced. Both of them had kids. And then, um, and John Coltharp's parents also move in with him. And then they just disappear. They just go off the grid. They're just gone. Turns out they moved to Cedar City, built kind of a, were, they were homesteading out there and building a house and stuff. And they did all of that, to, apparently, to try to disappear, uh, to try to make sure that no one knew where they were. They were just gone. And that's where it was for a few months. Now, at that time, and this is the this is the thing that's hard for me. Um, at that time, I am concerned, right? And I got my family together, and my mom and my dad, and my sister, one of my brothers, my brother-in-law, and I said, okay, we need to have a meeting. We need to talk about this because I think there's something going on. I think maybe we should call CPS, the Child Protective Services, right? Um, and so uh, DCFS in Utah um, are the ones who go and check and investigate for wellness checks, but also for like child um, abuse and allegations and things like that. And I said, I think we need to call them. Long story short, we didn't call them. My family was too scared to do so. This is one of the reasons why it's we need good laws and we need to feel that we are safe with these agencies. But we did not. And frankly, I still don't feel safe with the way that they run their department, the Department of Family and Child Services, um, Child and Family Services. I might have gotten that backwards. 
the way they handle things, they don't even follow their own rules half the time. And they certainly didn't in our case. And it was, it was very, very, I mean, it should be illegal and it was definitely extrajudicial. They did all kinds of things they should not have done. Um, but at the same time, I still regret it. I deeply regret not calling CPS. Would have been better for everyone if I had. And so to some extent, this is a story about my own failure. Please, if you're worried, just do it. Just call. Call 911, call the helpline, call somebody. Because when there's this many red flags, you can't just ignore it. So I pushed back some, enough for him to be estranged from me, but not enough for me to really stop him. So apparently they're down in there in Cedar City, and I'm just going to talk about this in timeline order, even though I didn't find this all out at once. They go down to Cedar City. They then start getting these additional revelations that are even further and further away from what is safe or right. John Coltharp gets a revelation saying that he should marry my nieces, Sam's daughters. At least one of them. I'm not sure. It's probably both. Sam, and that Sam should marry his daughters. He had two daughters, um, at least one of them, maybe both. I'm not sure. And they were, can you give us their ages at this time? Oh, uh, nine and 10 years old. Yeah. Super young. Super young. Nine and 10 year olds. That is just plain straight up pedophilia, especially to older men. And so they have a ceremony. They marry each other's daughters. John Coltharp then gets another revelation. Uh, stating that I am an obstacle to the going forth of God's kingdom because I am connected to these other Mormon fundamentalist groups and I'm out there saying John Coltharp's a dangerous man. We should do something about this. And so he gets a revelation saying that I need to be removed for the benefit of the kingdom of God, that they need to go to my home, kill me, and take my daughters so that they can take the, my daughters as additional wives. I actually didn't know that part, Ben, that um, you were the target of this and that your daughters were as well. Yeah. And so we get warned by the police that we are in danger. It was scary. It was really scary. And when I saw Under the Banner of Heaven and I saw the, the murder scenes, I couldn't help but think that's that could be me. That could have been me. And you, you know this. Um there's a few, there's a few folks in this community where every once in a while I'll get threatened by an extremist or someone who's unwell. And I've come to you about it whenever I have a problem, even if it's benign or I'm, you know, worried about something, I can ask you about it. Maroni Jessup is one of those as well. When you do speak out in these communities, it is hard too. That's, that's the other obstacle. Cause you know, I know that you're going over what you could have done if you could have done more, but I will say the very fact that you're talking about it now is more than most people will do. They want to live in their shame. They want to hide it. They want to forget about it, uh, live with that guilt. And to me, this is sort of like a repentance of what it looks like. And again, you are not responsible for perpetrators, but like you said, there are all these failures along the way and not just with you, but with entire communities, because they weren't just having conversations with you. They were having conversations with a lot of people. True. And nobody else was calling them. You know who finally did, though? The thing that saved us all, really, was that John Coltharp refused to show up for his own um, custody modification. His John Coltharp's ex-wife, who 
undoubtedly knew of his abusive nature much better than I do. I've only met the man once. She divorced him and he would not give, he was refusing to give her parent time. There's another red flag. Uh, he refused anyone access to those girls for obvious reasons. They were brainwashing those girls into thinking that this was normal, that this was good. You could be sure that if those girls saw their mom, she'd be like, hey mom, why weren't you at my wedding? Or something like that, right? Um, they were trying, they were grooming them into this and they, they wanted to keep their criminal secrets a secret. And this, suddenly, by the way, that's what made it all make sense. All their behavior seemed so irrational to me. It was like, it was weird. It was, cons but like, how concerning is it? Was it concerning enough to rise the level of having to report to someone? Did I want the additional scrutiny of me um, being the one to ask DCFS? Did I want them going through our houses to decide who should have custody of my nieces maybe, or something like that? I. I didn't want to have anything to do with all that. It's just like, it's like Pandora's box. You know what I mean? You don't want to open that whole can of worms just because you're concerned. I didn't know. I didn't know yet it reached this level. Well, um, here's another dark secret. I think in, in a lot of our communities is because we have been taught a lot of secrecy and shame around issues of abuse and sex. We have really unhealthy sexual uh, education narratives because of that. Any experimentation or abuse that happens when you're children and you don't talk about it, which is a lot in our communities, then you feel complicit in it. You feel like a, you know, there's a lot of people that are uh, victims, survivors, and perpetrators within their own community. And so all of that is self-protecting. All of that says, well, if I bring this to the surface, what are they going to find out about our, you know, my family secrets? And I've seen that over and over. Right. That's you know, and, th and this can be true even with just really minor things. You know, let's say you're a kid at camp and somebody's playing with uh, firecrackers. You know it's dangerous or they start a fire or some random other dangerous thing happens. Oftentimes, people are scared to be the one to go and tattle. Uh, snitches get stitches, they say, right? Um, because you think, well, this is also going to show that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is going to show that I was in trouble. You know, BYU honor code type thing. It's like, I need to speak up because there's someone who's a sexual predator, but in that confession, I have to tell them that I'm part of a group that goes drinking regularly. You right. know, if there isn't protection right. for the person who's the reporter, then it does. it's not going to get reported. Because if they go out there and they say, by the way, uh, yeah, uh, part of this, part of reporting this dangerous, much more dangerous person, this much more dangerous situation, a sexual predator or something, I have to tell you how I know. And the way I know is that I broke the honor code too. If there's no protection for that reporter, then they're just not going to tell. And it's going to stay in the darkness. It's going to stay well, in the Well, let's be clear. We're not alluding that uh, Ben also was like perpetrating on underage children. We're talking no, generally. No, I'm not. <laughs> I feel like I need to say that in case someone out there is like, what, what, that sounds defensive. No, no, no. Well, I sure. And, and, but, but, you know, at the same time, I, I'm a lawyer. Okay. I'm an attorney and I have worked with clients, multiple clients who have had dealings with child protective services, for example, and had them do things that were frankly illegal and definitely very disruptive to people's lives. I've seen CPS engaged in what generally amounts to ethnic cleansing where they try to take native children from their homes in an effort to make them more white and things like that. And I've, I've been in the trenches with this type of thing. So I know the kinds of department that I'm dealing with is not always held to its own professional standards. Okay. So, Listen, so I, I'm I'm really to confront that as well, because, you know, uh, I've, 
I was taught to be like a law-abiding citizen, which I th- I think still is the the right path. But talking to I some try to be colors, yeah, <laughs> friends of color, their experiences with CPS. It's not all systems are created equal, and I think that's absolutely true. So, right. I actually think it makes sense that there would be some hesitancy, especially amongst the Mormon fundamentalist community. And sometimes I do think, I mean, the system is just woefully underprepared and overextended, and has a lot of problems. But uh, this is one of the reasons why I want to recommend to everyone that they read the article by Shirley Draper about her own experiences uh, leaving the FLDS uh, and how the state dealt with them. It's it's a rational fear that people will face. Yeah, it's it's a rational fear. And how we act on it is interesting. But again, it this we're talking about this is a hard, messy conversation today. We're talking about. What does complicity look like? And in every case, it, it might be a little bit different, but we navigating mm-hmm. these systems, it shows that this is another barrier, some of these stigmas, yeah. which is why you and I and others uh, advocated for this decriminalization of polygamy, because d- do I think that uh, people should live polygamy? I don't. I've been clear about that. You obviously feel differently, um, but we both could agree and come to the table that consenting adults should be able to do what they want to do and not feel repercussions. And it's because of these repercussions that sort of trickle down into these systems of distrust. And and that's a huge, Mm -hmm. huge part of it. So as brief, I'll tell you one other little story and then I'll summarize and bring it back on base. There's a, um, I'll keep them anonymous, but there's a Mormon fundamentalist I know of who was assaulted, physically assaulted by a neighbor uh, this isn't a family violence story. This was a neighbor, not even a member of the same church, rather than call the police on her neighbor because of her fear of the system. Because, And at the time, um, polygamy was f- criminalized, and she was a polygamist. She was a plural wife. They moved their entire plural family out of state rather than call 911 on one abusive neighbor. That's how much fear there was. And that that does not that, that makes our communities a much more dangerous place if people feel that they cannot uh, reasonably report serious crimes against them because they're so afraid of the police. And again, one more plug for Shirley Draper, her article, which is um, a juvenile instructor. You can look at their, they're doing a series on Under the Banner of Heaven. It's definitely worth checking out. Lots of great stuff there. She also runs Cherished Families, which we talk about here, which we've got an ad um, at the beginning of this podcast for. She helps get resources to these like really isolated communities, and which which is so important. I mean, you have to think about that there are communities out there that are so isolated, so rural that they're not even teaching their children to read. And that's a crazy thing to think about. But when we talk about these online spaces, some people don't even have access to that. And so Shirley Draper is doing the good fight. She's in the trenches, um, helping get resources to really isolated communities. And they're the ones that need it most. You know, as a believing Mormon fundamentalist, her, that charity, Cherished Families, is the only one I trust. Almost everyone else, even if they talk a good talk behind the scenes, they actually have some kind of extremist um, evangelical cult or some other kind of cult that they're just trying to recruit, frankly, Mormon fundamentalists into or, or make us change our views on something. Cherished Families is the only one that really walks the walk as well as talks the talk of really making a difference in the community and doing so in a way that isn't pushing some other secret agenda or, you know, conversion goal or something. 
So, so while we're talking about that, I was going to ask you this question because I've been contemplating this when we're looking at red flags, you know, my impulse is Mm -hmm. to be like, anytime a guy starts his own church, shouldn't we be a little concerned? However, I see this all the time. Not necessarily. Usually usually it's just, you know, a, a guy writing up some manifesto in his basement and, you know, it never goes anywhere. It doesn't get any traction, but it mm-hmm. sometimes it does. And well, so and in all fairness to um, Steve Shields and his excellent work on the divergent paths to the restoration, when he's talking about like 400 something different unique expressions of the faith, he's not necessarily saying that these are extant uh, real communities. Most of them are not communities. I'd say there's probably less than 20 or 30 actual churches that hold regular meetings that, where there's actually a community associated with them. I, I would argue there are more than way more than that, but I, yeah. your point. Yeah. I think, I think that's the discussion of like what constitutes a group. Where's that boundary, right? What yeah. constitutes a, an actual church versus just a, a family or maybe even just an individual who has a unique perspective. So, so that's the question. No, that's the mess because we have, we see it all the time. You're interacting, you're interacting with these folks all the time. I am and you you read their manifestos or the doctor and it kind of looks the same. Sometimes you've got folks who are legitimately mentally ill and, you know, yeah. it's not tracking or but, whatever. But again, most mental illness is nonviolent. Most mental illness is nonviolent. We shouldn't stigmatize that. I mean, people can be paranoid and schizophrenic and all kinds of other things and not be dangerous. Well, and this this is the point that I want to talk about a danger. There's There's a huge knee-jerk reaction in the mainstream argument right now that that, you know, the character in the show says our, our gospel or our history breeds dangerous men. And they're like, no, 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 that's not true. Violence isn't just physical violence. Um, as is the story yeah. in your brother, it's uh, sexual violence, it's brainwashing, it's patriarchal control, it's coercion. Violence mm-hmm. is not just, you know, blood atoning someone. And that's my frustration is that that statement is absolutely true because not only does it breed violent men, physically violent men, but it breeds the rest of us to give it a pass, to turn a blind eye. And, you know, for me, I look at that as it's just the result of all this generational trauma. We came from a, a group who were persecuted and we use those narratives to entrench us further and make us further afraid of outsiders. And so we're just perpetuating it. So it's easy for me to see how we got here. And yet I see us uphold that scaffolding over and over and over. And I don't think that that serves yeah. anybody. It really doesn't. And the other danger, of course, is, as um, I guess now's the time to address it, is that we other people, this us versus them mentality gets drilled into us in Mormonism because of our persecution history. Our history of that makes us think, okay, insiders, good. These are our people. Outsiders, bad. Those are the people who persecute us. Those are the people who harm us. Uh, this is you know, doubly um, relevant in the Mormon fundamentalist context. I have had people in my lifetime okay, that were presidents of my church who were martyred. At least you have to go further back in the mainstream LDS before you start looking at your own church leadership as in regular danger of actually being killed. And and like I said before, I I had to struggle with the fact that I was a target at one point. And um, thank goodness, thank goodness they caught them before he was able to come to my house. 
And I've, I have also been targeted and you know what, not just by Mormon fundamentalist prophets, by, but by angry LDS men, the, the most violent rhetoric, the most death threats we ever got as Mormon feminist bloggers was when we had the gall to wear pants to church. Like <laughs> really wear, wear, wear your pants to church day. I remember that. Oh yeah. I, told, that, I remember telling my wife, Hey, don't forget it's wear your pants to church day. It, that was, that was really <laughs> interesting to watch. And I, I just think that's so interesting, but um, we have so much to move through. So I want to, I want to ask yeah, you sorry. a few questions. No, it's okay. There. Can you tell us your reaction to watching the series? Because you talked about this othering and I really appreciated your perspective of how your first knee jerk was like, wait, there was not enough fundamentalist representation in the show. Do you remember this critique? Yes, yes, I do. Basically, I, I saw the I saw the first two episodes uh, there at that uh, preview screening, and I lamented when it was done that uh, the first two episodes we still hadn't yet seen any Mormon fundamentalist characters. And then there were some mainstream Mormons. I'd mentioned this too. And they went, what are you talking about? It's only Mormon fundamentalists. None of these people are mainstream Mormons. And I'm like, no, of course not. Are you kidding me? No, they're all mainstream members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's everything that they've shown so far is totally mainstream. And they wanted to disavow that and say, no, 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 that's other than us. They're the out group, not the in group. And I realized I was doing the same thing. My people are Mormon fundamentalists. That was my in-group. It was easier for me to vilify someone because they're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those are the crazy people. And in fact, I do sometimes tease to some extent that uh, the, the textbook definition, the, the, the dictionary definition of fundamentalism is, you know, extreme literalism, um, extreme um, obedience uh, focus, uh, a focus on leadership, things like that. And I usually argue, you know, by that classical definition, my church, Christ Church, we're not Mormon fundamentalists at all. You guys are the Mormon fundamentalists in the mainstream LDS church because you're the ones who do all those things. You know, uh, that purity culture and uh, to that extreme and so forth. You know, it's not right when I do it. It's also not right when they do it. What we're doing is, is we're trying to make a boundary of the us versus them, where the us is the good people, the safe people. We're the good guys. And then the other is the bad people, the, those outsiders. They're the bad ones. They're the ones who cause trouble. They're the ones who do violence. And the danger there, of course, is that then we don't take ownership and therefore we don't call it out. It's not our problem anymore. It's someone else's problem. It, this didn't happen in our community anymore. It happened out on those fringes with those bad people that we can we can then vilify them. We can say, oh, all Mormon fundamentalists are bad. I had a friend. Or Jeb, Jeb Pyrie, the detective, is on a diet. So therefore, the whole show is garbage because he doesn't eat French fries. Because he doesn't eat French fries. And that's not <laughs> our people. You know, I mean, it, it can it can be petty. Um, I do remember uh, with the book, Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. Um, I know quite a few book owners. I'm also bit of a librarian for my church. And so I deal with a lot of book dealers in old LDS um, books and artifacts. And one of them said that a woman had a copy of Under the Banner of Heaven. And another guy said, oh, and she was recommending it to her friend. And her friend said, oh, well, why, what, what did you learn from this book? And she said, I learned to stay away from those fundamentalists. And I thought, what an interesting thing that her first takeaway from the book Under the Banner of Heaven was the fundamentalists are bad guys. But my people were fine. And then people do the same thing with that book and the, with the series. I'm sure they will um, saying, oh, Mormons are bad. Mormon, all Mormons are violent and dangerous because our community breeds dangerous men, like you said, from that famous quote. Um, 
I'll just stay away from them. Or maybe I will even persecute them or other them. I will assume that I don't want them in my company. I'm not going to hire them. I don't want them in my community. I'll shun them because they might be dangerous. They might be like the Lafferty's. Um, and the problem is, is that that fallacy, it's usually called the no true Scotsman fallacy. Um, it means that you never actually address the real issue. The real issue that we have to confront is violent rhetoric. When do we report it? Where's our lines? How do we address this? How do we deal with it? But if it's not part of our community, then it's not our problem and we never learn how to address it. And so in order for us to really address these things, we have to own them. We have to say, and if anybody in the mainstream of this church is listening, especially general authorities or leaders, you got to take ownership. You got to own it. Um, you got to say, this is a problem in our community, in our church, and we are going to confront it and we are going to address it. That's the only responsible way to do it. Otherwise, it never gets addressed. Well, and, and this is something that I've said over and over too. the reason why people don't trust Mormons. And, and again, I now have had the opportunity working on the show, going to LA a lot, going up to Canada and Calgary, where we film this, talking to a lot of folks who have seen the show now and seen all of the show who were working on it or part of it or screening it or whatever. Um, they are having a different experience. They're saying, oh, wow. I, I used to think all Mormons were, you know, these weird, crazy people. The show is showing me how diverse it is. There are all these different kinds of Mormons know that. Yeah. And, and, and well, that's okay. But except that's okay. Except I don't want to then find out that only Mormon fundamentalists like myself get to be the others. And then everybody can gang up and persecute us. Oh, like, that's I, not I, help I, either. I would hope that my work is a, is a testament <laughs> to, to fighting that because I yeah. think the, the show and you know, as we will see, and I have to still be careful what I say, it hits way harder at the mainstream than it does at anything else because it is not us versus them. It is us. This is us. LDS <laughs> communities. Like this is happening. Right. This is where it happens. Yeah. And, and, and it is us. And as long as we keep saying it's not us, it's, it, that's the problem. And that's why I right. think it's so brave about what you're doing today. You're looking at your own house being in order. And we talked about this earlier, but lest anyone is out there pointing fingers saying, you know, Ben should have done more or Lindsay's being too soft on fundamentalists. We all do this. How many of us have heard stories of wrongdoing, abuse, bad behavior, and rallied around it? I've been in Mormon feminist mm. circles where, you know, we're talking about patriarchal abuse and then the way that women are treating each other and, and abusing each other for scarcity. And I've been in a situation where I saw women get in a physical fight, an abusive fight, and we had to explain it away, right? Mm-hmm. We need to be doing this everywhere right. in ourselves first. Some of the greatest uh, upholders of uh, patriarchal abuse are women. We know this statistically. We know that women uphold these orders. Yeah. And, you know, we could give plenty of, of examples of that. Patriarchal abuse is a system. The patriarchal order is a system and everybody is participating in it. So the work is to look at yourself first and then to focus on, you know, the, the things around you. And if we, as long as we are distancing ourselves and our first reaction, this is my frustration with the whole show and the book and all of it is every Mormon's first knee jerk reaction is that's not us. It's wrong. Rather than what a horrible story, right. what a hor- horrible compilation of stories 
Um, I wish they would have gotten some more details, right? But what can we do? So this never happens again. And this is why people don't trust Mormons because it took John Krakauer and outsider to point the light on it first. It should have been someone else. And, you know, say what you will about Dustin Lance Black, but he's doing that work. I feel very grateful to walk with him in this work. And Ben, I think you're doing that in your own community. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very brave. Mormonism needs more brave men. Well, and here's one that's coming up um, very soon. And so we might as well preempt this right now. Very soon, we're going to see the murder trials for Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow. That's coming up this summer or fall, probably. And that's going to get, again, more media attention on it. And just watch. Most mainstream LDS people are going to say they're not one of us. They, they're outsiders. They are different. It's not true. They are representative of our community. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all a bunch of murderers. Of course we're not. But they are part of Mormonism. They were a firm part of mainstream Mormonism for many years. He was a vetted, um, Chad Daybell was a vetted, embraced Deseret Book author, endorsed by the Correlation Department, endorsed at the highest levels of the mainstream LDS church. And they're going to make it sound like they've never heard of him as soon as he's on trial for murder. And then there's any, um, and there's any they, you know, media attention to it. Immediately after. Yes, it is true. Immediately after. Immediately after. Immediately when he was arrested. They started distancing themselves. And I just think you guys, this is, this is why it happens. And, and Ben, I know we were going to go over right. all the stories of, of violence in the community because you and I were kind of like, we're going to take accountability. We're going to list all the stuff. I don't actually think we have time. Maybe we could turn that into a We can't fit them all. But Chad Daybell is a great example. That's it, it's not in the eighties. You know, this is something that's happening now. Right. This, and- this is not, he's not even convicted yet. And, um, and yet, and it is true that his beliefs became extremely strange that he was going in an odd direction, but this is where he started. This is where he's from, you know, and we have to take ownership of that if we're going to stop it. And we need to stop the next Lafferty. We need to stop the next Daybell. They're probably out there right now talking about how Abraham was brave for being willing to kill his son instead of recognizing that maybe we should take um, that story in a different direction and say, I want to be like the angel. I want to be the angel who stood up and said, stop. Don't hurt your son. Right. That's the example we should be taking from that story. Let's not be Abraham. Let's be the angel. I like that. I think that's really beautiful. And let's let's say stop to the next person who the next person who interprets this story as let's be like Abraham. Tell them, no, that's dangerous rhetoric. It leads to a dark place. Let's be the angel. And if we do that for each of these things as they come up, then maybe we have a chance of stopping the next one. I I appreciate that. And again, this is not really rooted in my defense of the show because I, I feel really good about my participation and, and the work that we did to make it more honest. But I feel like when you're, when you're upset that these stories or outsiders or whoever it is, is making the church look bad, maybe it's ourselves that, are, you know, there, there's a quote in the, yeah. in the film that says, maybe the danger isn't an outsider, but it's us. Maybe the harm is us. And we need to look at that. And then it's not a problem anymore. And and right, then we can fix it. Yeah. And so I'm just going to make a plug really quick on your polygamy. We are hosting stories of people who do see themselves in the narrative that have stories very similar to Brenda's. 
you can look at it yearpolygamy.org. It's called under living under the banner. So that's a series, but Ben, I really yeah. appreciate this bravery. I know this is a deeply personal, painful, uh, sort of, it's, it's been a shameful thing to talk about. And I hope that you speaking, it takes away that shame. I think it's, um, I think it's incredibly beautiful and I hope more folks follow your example. I guess I better finish the story then. Everybody knows about this story who lived in Utah because we all got an Amber Alert. Now I hadn't spoken to my brother in about six months, maybe more. I mean, it was about a year since we were estranged largely. Um, it was about six months since the very last contact or news I'd even heard of him. And I get this Amber Alert on my phone that says, Samuel Schaefer is wanted. These children are believed to be in danger. And I was like, oh my goodness, what is going on? You know, I called up the, um, I called up the, the number, you know, and said, I haven't seen him in a long time, but I'm his brother. I'll tell you anything I can. Um, I, what do you know? What should I do? Um, I wish I'd had recordings of those phone conversations because one of them advised me to drive to Cedar City and see if I couldn't um, help or maybe even uh, pick up my nieces when they were found. Um, the other, the, the iconic moment from this was that, that my niece was in a barrel, hiding in a barrel from the police when they found her. Um, and that be has become the iconic image. Apparently, the police really botched it. They went to the house in Cedar City where they lived. They did not set up a reasonable perimeter or anything like that. They just went up to the door and knocked on the door. And when my brother Sam saw that he was going to be in trouble and he was going to get caught uh, for the child abuse that they had been perpetuating and things like that, he took four of the kids and he went out the back door and nobody even noticed. Um, and then he was in the dead of winter trying to escape through the deserts out there in southern Utah where it's not safe and it's not – there's no shelter. And as I mentioned earlier, he is physically handicapped. And, well, frankly, he's mentally handicapped too in the sense that he is criminally insane. He is in the mental health ward, by the way. Um, he got 25 years for his crimes. And because he's in the mental health ward, there's also some provision that they may keep him there permanently simply because he is criminally insane. He took the girls out the back and started trying to find a way to escape the United States, escape America, escape something. But he couldn't carry four little girls. And two of them wanted to be carried sometimes. And he, they weren't fully prepared. They didn't have their all of the equipment they needed to be on, you know, running, fleeing in the winter. And so to some extent, uh, I have to bring this up because violence in our community is justified by these religious um, terms, these religious – I would say that it's more or less a, twist, a twisted veiling of their criminal intent and justifying it by religion. But John Colthorpe instructed my brother Samuel that rather than let the girls be captured, he was to kill them, that he was to, he was to murder them. And when Sam ran with those four girls, he had with him two firearms. He went um, as far as he could. That's when he found some abandoned uh, storage equipment, a shed, some barrels, things like that. And he was like, I cannot get all four girls any farther to what he deemed as safety. And he was faced with that moment where he knew 
this is exactly when John Coltharp instructed him in the name of his God to murder those girls. And he couldn't do it. Thank God he couldn't do it. He had some humanity in him. Regardless of the what he'd been told, regardless of what he'd been groomed into doing, he, he just said, I saw at that moment, I just knew I could not do it. And so he took the firearms and he threw them. He just threw them out in the desert from where he was standing. Probably not very far, honestly, because he's not very strong, like I said. Um, but he threw the firearms and he took the two smallest girls and he hid them inside the storage stuff, including that barrel. He packed stuff around them to try to keep them warm. And he said, I will be back as fast as I can. And he picked up the other two girls and he went running for where he knew he could find shelter. As soon as he got there, though, he knew that they were going to freeze and that he could not. He couldn't. First of all, he knew that he was going against what John Coltharp had told him to do, but he knew that he didn't want those girls to die. So thank God at that point, he ran out. He, he went walking out toward the public highway and flagged someone down and surrendered himself to the police. Um, and that's the one redeeming thing he did in this story. I then, not knowing any of this yet, not knowing that they were going to kill me, not knowing that uh, he wanted to kill the girls or that they'd molested them or that they had believed in underage brides or any of that, I went down there to see if I could help out and see what I should do. And I, I marched in there and I talked to my brother and asked him what was going on. You know, where, where have you been living? What's going on in your mind? And little by little, he started confessing and telling me everything that he'd done. And I, again, it's hard to be confrontational. I just told him, well, good luck then, and walked out. And that's the last I spoke to him. And unfortunately, he still wants to justify. He wants to justify everything with religion. He wants to say, well, John Coltharp is still God's prophet, and God will get us out of this prison. And it's like Dan Lafferty. You know, he says the same crazy things. I bet Chad Daybell is too. What happened to John? John. Uh, he was sentenced to 45 years to life. Um, and he was the only one actually convicted of the child molestation and child rape. Um, they convicted him to 45 years and he's also in, in prison. I think Gunnison prison facility. And that's what I tell you what, it certainly helps me sleep at night knowing he's in there. Um, knowing that I was next on the hit list. Um, if he ever gets out, I'm going to be scared. Especially if they haven't seen just how delusional their beliefs became and repented of that in any way. But at this point, I don't think they have. I think that they they still think they're right. I don't so think you, you've shared with me their sort of manifesto constitution incorporating article or whatever can which i which isn't near which is really isn't uh, if you read it it's not nearly that scary compared to what they did do that was their public facing document they wanted people to join them can can i put that on our on the site so people can view it yeah might as well okay um we'll put that there so people can read sort of kind of how this happens so after all this experience, Ben, what would, what's sort of your takeaway? I know it's still unfolding for you as it's, I mean, this didn't happen very long ago. So where yeah. are you at with it currently? You know, with, with the idea that of course your feelings are evolving and could 
change and develop into You know, they say that a person who doesn't forgive poisons themselves, hoping their enemy will die. Um, and that forgiveness isn't for the perpetrator, it's for us to be able to move on. I know that, but I'm not really ready to forgive him. I have no communication with him and I don't want any. And if I did, it would be ugly because I'm angry at him. Well, I you know? mean, I think as a victim, a, po a potential uh, victim, I've, I've also faced um, a similar, well, several similar s situations and, uh, you know, people threatening to kill me, attempting things like this. I don't think we have to forgive that. <laughs> I don't. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's where I'm at. Um, Ben, you're really brave. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. I, I think that what I want everyone to understand is everyone can be brave. I'm not always that brave. I actually am a, I always thought being a peacemaker meant kind of being deferential, avoiding contention. I now believe that being a peacemaker is having the courage to stand firm when at those lines, at those dangerous points and saying, no, that's not acceptable. That's wrong. And I won't, I won't tolerate that here. Making clear boundaries, I think, is what that is. And that is actually what it means to be a peacemaker. And so you say it's courageous of me to admit my own, my own failures. And it's courageous for me to stand up against this kind of rhetoric. And maybe, maybe that that is a form of courage, but it's a form of courage that's accessible. It's easy. All of us should do it. Honestly, it gets easier the more you practice it. And I think that we should all mentally practice it. Like right now, while you're listening to this, tell yourself, where's my line? Where is my boundaries? Where I'm going to say, no, that's not acceptable. We will not discuss that here. We will not countenance that kind of speech here. If that's the road we're going down, I will call the police. You know, that kind of thing. Where are those lines? Decide on them and be firm with them. And that makes you a peacemaker. And it's not as hard or as courageous as you might think. When somebody stands up and they start saying crazy things, they want to say racial slurs or, hey, please, I would really appreciate it if more people would stand up when people talk badly about Mormon fundamentalists as though we're all a bunch of criminals. Please stand up and just say, you know, that's not that's a, that's an unfair generalization. That's prejudice. Of course, there are bad people in all communities. There are criminals that are black. That doesn't make all black people criminals. And when someone generalizes like that and makes it into some kind of racist thing, you just got to stand up and tell them to stop. Tell them to stop and that you won't put up with that. And it's not that hard. And once you do it once or twice, you'll realize it's really not that hard. So the courage, the, the, the strength to do that, it's, it's in you. It's in all of us. So let's try. Let's practice that, that spiritual moral muscle of of standing up and letting our voices be heard and calling out that darkness and that violence wherever we see it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And what would you say to communities who, you know, are in our midst, who we know some of the people and, you know, have admiration and respect, but we know that they adhere to doctrines that cross our lines right now, um, incest and intermarriage and underage marriage. Is there, is there a lesson for people who have already crossed those lines? Is there a redemption, a way to turn this, this ship around and change? Well, there is. Absolutely. In fact, I think that's available to anybody, even in any of these communities, if 
if you're in a situation that has crossed those lines, stop, stop now. And the fallout, the fallout of addressing it and trying to correct it is it's easier to deal with. It's easier to deal with when you are choosing to address it than it is when it just happens to you. Uh, let's let's go back in time and deal with a what if. What if I'd called CPS before John Coltharp and Sam had gone off the deep end enough to marry off their daughters to each other in these weird pedophilic arrangements that they created? If if CPS had caught up with them before that, maybe they wouldn't have gone that far down that road. Maybe they would have recognized how dangerous it was. You know, that's so much easier to deal with. I would much rather be sitting in a police station as, you know, Brenda's husband saying, look, I know I don't know how to explain this to you because I'm mixed up with some really weird people and my brothers are talking violence. I think it's really dangerous. And there, and you know, it's true. You know, the fictional Jeb Pyrie might've been like, you broke your covenants. You are a bad man. You, you know, I, I, you're on the outside of the us versus them. You're one of them, not one of us. He might've had some backlash if he'd done that, but he darn well better. Sh it, it would, how much better would the story have been though, if he had just done it before Brenda and Erica were murdered? They could have saved their lives. No amount of being uncomfortable with this is worse than what actually did happen because he didn't. Because they didn't stand up, his wife and daughter were murdered. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth having the tough conversation rather than having the funeral. There you go. There, there are the words. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being vulnerable with us today and for, you know, turning this story into something that can hopefully liberate and prevent more of these scenarios. Yeah, I hope it does. I hope it does. I hope we'll all stand up and do something about it. Thank you all for listening today. I know that was a heavy episode. I want to thank Ben Schaefer at Christ Church or the Righteous Branch. You can look up some of his episodes to learn more about him and his fundamentalist group. And I'm trying to get the links fixed on the website. I'm trying to maintain the site. I need money to do that. If this podcast is valuable to you, if you support the work that I've done over the years. If you support women in Mormonism and Mormon studies, please give a donation. Every part of that goes to maintaining this podcast and making it worthwhile. So please donate today at yearpolygamy.com. We've also been collecting stories of people who see themselves in Brenda Lafferty's stories and in other characters and under the banner of heaven. You can look at those at yearpolygamy.com as well. There's a tab living under the banner. I would recommend checking those out, although they are heavy and a little dark. And if you're interested in sharing your stories, there's information on how to submit. Thanks, everyone.
The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.